Hello everyone, it's Sarah here from Activist Lawyer recording in the Granite Podcast Studio in Uri. Thank you for tuning in again. Um, so today we're joined by Kevin Winters of K or W Law, human rights lawyers based in Belfast. For those of you who don't know Kevin Winters, he's a leading human rights lawyer renowned for criminal defence, historical abuse cases and probably um, widely known for handling and leading the way in many of the legacy cases particular to Northern Ireland and the troubles here. This recording goes into detail around Kevin's work on very politically charged matters as well, like collusion and Article 2 right to life cases. For clarity, we'll publish a link on our website to Kevin's work and some of the cases he discusses. But we really would urge anyone interested in working in human rights and finding out more about solicitors who have been active in a post-conflict jurisdiction to really listen in. Um, We really appreciate Kevin giving us such a candid open and honest account of his career and his life in law, which is at times, I will say, quite harrowing and unnerving, but truly, truly fascinating. So I'd urge anyone to tune in. More of an introduction to Kevin Winters um, for anybody who is listening in. Kevin was apprenticed to criminal defence and human rights lawyer Patrick Finucane at the time of his murder in 1989. On Pat's death, Kevin went into partnership with Peter Madden and the late Eamon McMenamin. Kevin initially worked on the McCann and Others versus UK shoot to kill death on the Rock inquests before the seminal case on the right to silence of Murray versus the UK. His criminal defence litigation in the 1990s contributed to the greater protection of the rights of people detained under terrorism provisions. Having forged his reputation and fighting miscarriages of justice in, justice in cases including the Ballymurphy 7 and the Beachmount 5, he went on to co-found Kevin Orr Winters in 2001, which changed its name in 2012 to KRW Law, and it is largest, Ireland's largest criminal law and human rights practice. Kevin's proven track record in judicial review applications has resulted in his Chambers and Partners Law Directory ranking in public and administrative law. His cases have embraced prisoners' rights, the right to march, political and sex discrimination and other equality issues. A new political climate in the jurisdiction following the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in 1998 has brought new challenges, resulting in the deployment of Kevin's skill set to a wider range of human rights issues, not the least of which has been conflict-related legacy litigation on behalf of the families of the victims and the survivors across the community, including former members of the security forces. The litigation department in his practice is unique in this respect and its work on behalf of victims and survivors is informing engagement with other post-conflict transitional justice jurisdictions which we will discuss today. In particular, this form of litigation being undertaken by Kevin and his colleagues challenges the failures of the British government to discharge its obligations following breaches of the right to life during the conflict. Kevin has pioneered the use of bespoke conflict-related legacy litigation strategies to address the ongoing truth recovery deficit for many bereaved families across the religious and political divide, and to call the British government to account for its failure to undertake independent investigations into the human rights violations suffered during the conflict. The range and breadth of instructions is testimony to his status as a leading advocate of an apolitical approach to what remains a serious human rights deficiency. Kevin is also a visiting speaker at the Institute of Professional Legal Studies of Queen's University Belfast, focusing on the management of a legal aid practice in fiscally straitened times. He is regularly requested to address Human Rights Forum, including the USA, having been nominated by the New York Senate for his contribution to human rights work, and more recently finds time from his busy schedule to assist as a legal advisor to the makers of the BBC drama series The Fall.
Now, there's so much more um, to Kevin's work, but we will get to a lot of that in um, our recording today. So thank you, Kevin, for joining me today in the studio. Thank you, Sarah, for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. My voice is a bit crackly with a heavy cold, so hopefully I'm audible to, to listeners. Thank you. Oh, um, look, you're good, you're good enough to be here. Great to have you in person here um, in Uri as well. So um, we just had an introduction there, and I think maybe we'll go back in time just to, you know, your early career, maybe as far back as to why, why law and what interested you in uh, taking on a role in, in the legal world. I suppose back in the day, um, I went to a local school here in St. Coleman's and uh, I was pretty okay at the arts type subjects, uh, had no clue in relation to science, etc. And you sort of find yourself gravitating to the type of areas of work that um, uh, were arts based or whatever, mm. if you want to put it that way. And uh, uh, going to St. Coleman's, uh, <laughs> they tended to produce a lot of priests back in the day. And when I was about 13 years of age, for about six weeks, I... Uh, I, I I dabbled with the notion right. uh, and then soon lost it. Um, but apart from that, uh, there wasn't any real particular focus to become a solicitor or a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Like a lot of people uh, of my vintage, um, they fell into it yeah. by default at times. Um, so I uh, went to study law at Queen's mm-hmm. and uh, I really had no idea what uh, type of area of law back in the late 1980s. Um, you were just glad to get a job yeah. anywhere. Uh, but for some mad notion, I had uh, this idea that I'd be uh, a tax uh, specialist. Where <laughs> that came from, I have no idea. Uh, I often heard my mum and dad complain about tax, and I thought, you know, this is something we should maybe look at. And um, I got an interview uh, with a couple of places, didn't come to anything. And then I, I heard um, someone was about to be uh, a le- relieved of their duties in Madden and Finucane yeah. and I should stick an application in there and I did that was interviewed by Pat Finucane and Peter Madden and uh, they reminded me that there wasn't an awful lot of uh, openings for tax specialists tax. In, in, in the north of Ireland at that time and uh, so I ended up in Madden and Finucane with not really having any full idea right. of the yeah. type of work that would have been involved okay. so it was um I was soon to find out. You were soon to find out. And I think it's fair to say that your your apprenticeship, um, you know, was pretty eventful and then quite, in fact, quite um, quite unnerving. Maybe you want to share sure. how, how you started off? In yes, I've spoken about this before. Um, but uh, the first few months was a, a really interesting introduction into my new world. Um, first big case I can remember was the awful events of the... Uh, three separate incidents um, the killings in um, Gibraltar uh, uh, of three IRA volunteers uh, they were killed by the security forces and their funerals at Milltown uh, led to an attack um, and and a number of people were killed Um, one of those was Kevin Brady who I had actually met out in Lisburn Magistrates Courts three days beforehand before the Milltown attack and um, then, of course, the, 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 the terrible uh, happenings of the, the, at the funeral mm-hmm. uh, of Kevin Brady when uh, two corporals were, were killed by a number of people. And th- that was my introduction into mm-hmm. the new world of um, uh, criminal law. Uh, and uh, Pat then was representing one of the persons accused uh, of the murder of the corporals. And, uh, I mean, th- those were pretty grim times when sure. you look back on them and uh, very, very intense, uh, nerve-wracking. But that was my 
new world mm-hmm. that I uh, now find myself in. Uh, it was exciting, it was difficult, it was dangerous, um, different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I went, I was sent uh, over by the firm to attend the inquest uh, at Gibraltar. It was running for a number of weeks. Paddy McGrory was the uh, the lead uh, solicitor dealing with that. And um, I had a, looking back on it now, I had a, uh, I suppose, a, a career-defining moment. Um, I, I would have been staying in a, in a small hotel on the other side of the border in Spain. Mm-hmm. And uh, you cross the border every day to and fro from the inquest. Um, Gibraltar was a very heavily securitized uh, state, mm-hmm. uh, heavy police military presence everywhere, and obviously heightened because of the tensions around uh, the inquest. And um, there was one particular day I was coming back from the inquest and I was taken aside by um, uh, non-uniformed security force personnel and they took me into a booth and um, asked me my name and so on. They knew exactly who I was. Yeah. And they told me to bend over, uh, to bend forward. Mm-hmm. Um, had no idea what was happening, but soon realised. Uh, one of them told me to take my trousers down mm-hmm. and to remove my, my underwear. Mm-hmm. So I found myself prostrate, bent over a table in a booth, surrounded by uh, heavily armed uh, uh, security personnel. Yeah. Who they were, I have no idea, but there was four or five of them. Through the side of my eye, I could uh, hear sniggering, and uh, they very quickly t- told me to um, just pull my trousers up and then said, off you go. That was a wake-up moment okay. for me, and it was my introduction into a new world. And the, um, the indignity and the uh, embarrassment, if you like, of that ha- has never left me. Yeah. Probably has been a formative influence on me in my later life and career, mm-hmm. but it has stayed with me for a long time. So we moved from that to just a few months later, to uh, February um, 1989, uh, and uh, a moment that, that just has will never leave me and I got a phone call from Eamon McMenamin um, who was one of my colleagues in, in Madden of Finucan, and now sadly deceased um, and Eamon phoned me um, after 7 o'clock on a Sunday night um, to say that um, Pat Finucan has just been shot dead those are the words and uh, and then the, the horror of that just I mean it just I mean when people deal with horrible grief moments like that uh, it's like t- I know it's such a cliche, but time does stand still, yeah, I'm sure. and uh, it was it, it was just awful. And uh, and then uh, to go into work the next morning, uh, and the stillness, uh, secretary's crying. Uh, Peter uh, Pat's partner had had all that uh, interfacing to do with ev- yeah. with everybody, um, and uh, so I was sitting in the office and uh, wondering what was going to happen next. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember Barry McGlory, the former uh, director of the DPP, coming in to, to, to see me, just to, to uh, extend a hand of, of friendship and say, listen, anything that needed done. And you don't forget those moments. No, I'm sure you, I'm sure you um, don't. I can just imagine how unsettling, especially, I mean, and to go through those events so early on in your career. Um, 
would you say that it did inspire you to continue in that line of work? I mean, I'm sure others would be very much put off at well, those early stages well, yes. to work in that kind of very, very difficult, intense environment after having suffered trauma yourself. And I mean, all, with all of your colleagues in the same position, yeah. how did you find what inspired you, I suppose, to, to continue and to you know build upon your work? Well, to be honest, uh, I, I think in the immediate aftermath, there was a lot of insecurity. Uh, there was an anxiety about what uh, was to become of the firm, uh, what was to become of me. Um, uh, I'd just been married with a young young child, and uh, um, the future was very, very uncertain. And um, But what kind of helped uh, crystallise thoughts was, I mean, a few hours just on the Monday morning after Pat was killed, there was a, a county court appeal listed for hearing, and um, I sent a barrister up to make an application for an adjournment. Mm-hmm. And I, I just assuming it was a, a, a box tick yeah. and that the adjournment would happen. Uh, it, it was a case, in fact, I'd been speaking with, uh, with Pat about a few days beforehand, and uh, he wasn't happy with me. And, <coughs> and very unusual for Pat, he, he got a bit agitated and said, listen, I, I wasn't handling the case properly. I hadn't filed something in time. And there was an issue about the notice of appeal, etc. And um, incredibly, on the Monday afternoon, after the murder of Pat Finucane, the barrister told me, to, to phone me to say that the judge had refused the adjournment. My goodness. And I, I, and I was just simply staggered with that. Um, um, a judge is now dead. But it, it, that has never left me. Um, and was, a, again, another series of incidents and moments in the aftermath of Pat's killing, mm-hmm. which helped form your view of of the of, of what lay ahead. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a difficult time, and uh, uh, it was a small number of people um, there uh, left to to try and, and work our way through. Um, but it was it was it was difficult, and um, it was a crossroads in my life. And uh, Pat's killing was an inciting moment for me. What previously was a job overnight became mm-hmm. a vocation and has stayed with me ever since. Ever since, my goodness. And at that time, I suppose, um, we'll get to, you, you know, the current situation in terms of, you know, harassment and threats around lawyers, but you've really lived that from the very outset of your career. I know your office at the time was obviously very shaken and, and the families of those involved and, and working there. But in general, what was the attitude like towards lawyers at that time or, you know, people, you know, a, a pat, I suppose, as well. Is it similar to now or was it much worse? I look back at that time in the early 1990s when I was starting out on my, on my career in the aftermath of Pat's killing and uh, it's almost like a, just a, a, a different world. Mm. Uh, and I look back on it uh, almost like a, through a 3D um, perspective um, and at times it's hard to believe that y- you did uh, live through it, but you did. And um, it was intimidating. Mm-hmm. Um, my my The standard work processes for me back then were Castlereagh Holding Centre, Longcash Prison and Crumlin Road Courthouse. That triumvirate of venues yeah. uh, was to be the formative basis for my workload for the next 10 years. Um, and... Uh, that was very intimidating. Uh, I was in Castlereagh very, very regularly, and uh, the threats that had been uh, issued to Pat before his death via interviewing officers persisted and continued. Mm-hmm. And uh, you would have got third-hand comments from clients to say that uh, things like Pat Finucane has been shot dead and removed 
you're next. Right. Um, go and tell your solicitor, uh, whoever, whoever comes up to see you, um, that they're next. And there was that kind of regular uh, comment uh, imparted to detain persons. And over a period of, of, of a number of years in the early to mid-1990s, now, at that time, of course, um, solicitors didn't have uh, permanent access to detained persons in holding centres. Mm-hmm. Uh, the full provisions of PACE regulations hadn't kicked in. Okay. And um, uh, you saw your client in, in between the interviews. Sure. And uh, that was all part of the um, interrogation process, also to undermine the confidence of the detained person mm-hmm. as well to, and to try and isolate them from the, uh, the role of the solicitor and the advices that the solicitor might have been giving. Um, so that was difficult. You would have been police stations to quite late at night, and uh, you know on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, and that didn't. There was no let up in that because at that time in the early nineties, we were at a at a peak time in the conflict mm-hmm. here, uh, when when incidents uh, were happening on an almost daily weekly basis, mm-hmm. and the workload that we were involved in reflected that as well. Of course. So different times, but your workload, um, you know, present day very much remains the same in the sense that you've taken forward quite a lot of high profile cases, um, you know, legacy cases, um, a lot of them um, based on, you know, collusion um, matters. And we've seen kind of how inquests have evolved uh, to present day. But just in terms of, again, bringing you back to, to those families that you work with as well, You've known them probably for decades now, um, bringing a lot of them through the courts and being able to institute uh, litigation now to try and resolve some of these matters and to try and access truth or some level of closure for the families involved in conflict in Northern Ireland. Um, But how do you see this whole process? It seems to be just a matter of re-traumatising, you know, the victims and the families and, you know, very often with no end in sight. How do you view, you know, your work is very much, um, you know, intertwined with the political climate of the time and it still continues to... Yes, I mean, there was a a political backdrop to the work back then in the 90s when I I started out as 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 a young lawyer. And there's obviously a very clear political backdrop today um, in relation to the work we've been involved in over the last number of years, particularly with reference to legacy work. Mm-hmm. But just dwelling firstly on the political backdrop to the early 90s work, I mm-hmm. mean, that, that, that sort of um, workload involved uh, frontline agitation on, on various human rights issues. First of all, access to solicitors, the right to silence. One of my first cases was mm-hmm. Murray versus the UK in 1981, which is a seminal uh, European court ruling on the, the right to silence. Uh, and that arose out of one of my first um, Castlereagh arrests uh, after Pat was killed. Um, we also um, had applications for um, habeas corpus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we took cases in relation to detained persons um, uh, been really, really badly beaten up, perforated eardrums and so on. And um, we, took, we took judicial reviews. I was involved in one of the first judicial reviews in relation to contentious parades. Uh, I'll never forget it. It was a, a contentious march in Pomeroy in 1992, I think it was, and the Court of Appeal sat at midnight um, in relation to an adjudication on that, um, and uh, all sorts of civil actions for mm-hmm. false imprisonment, wrongful arrest, unlawful detention. Uh, we, we led the way. The, the, the fulcrum of that was at the head of that almost, if you like, looking back on it now, I would, I would describe Peter, Peter Madden as the godfather of human rights, if you like, you know, mm-hmm. given that the... Um, uh, the the early gestation of what we have today with a, a huge amount of people active in human rights uh, an awful lot of the, my view 
the DNA genesis of that stemmed from those early days. And yeah. Eamon McManaman, who I cited earlier, um, and many people maybe don't know Eamon or who he was, but he was very much at the apex of civil litigation against uh, state agencies, mm -hmm. police and so on, and the MOD for human rights abuses and excesses. And uh, there was no one like him. He, he really led the way. And I, and I learned an awful lot from yeah. from Peter uh, and, and from Eamon in those days. And, and yes, there were difficult times and, and very... Uh, strained times and uh, an awful lot of hostility to the work that you did back then. Yeah. I mean, uh, political hostility. Um, there was some huge amount, of course, policing hostility uh, and from other uh, quarters as well. And um, uh, so there was a backdrop of of a stigma at times to the work that you were doing. Uh, not everyone would have been supporting the type of work that you do, uh, that you would have done then. Um, and equally, ditto today, today 30 years exactly. on, it hasn't there's a lot really of political hostility to the work that, that, that yeah. goes on today. And do you think, I mean, I'm not sure how to approach this question, but, um, you know, some kind of strategy behind that. I mean, the media seem to just have run with some, um, we'll get to that again a little bit later, just the specifics of some of the media tax specifically um, towards, you know, your firm and other firms in, in Belfast. But in general, I mean, is this an attempt to maybe shut down the work that you're doing to have these kind of orchestrated attacks and very real attacks and real threats, intimidation, harassment that has continued throughout your career? I mean, do you see a, a wider picture behind that or, you know, personally, how do you feel about it? The, uh, the harassment and intimidation as such has evolved and changed. Um, back then in the 90s through it into the 2000s, um, and this has been the subject of some uh, human rights, international uh, human rights observations and reports and so on, uh, which are well known in the public domain. Um, that was outright harassment and death threats. I mean, we, we've received death threats, I've received death threats, um, and uh, uh, as have other people involved in this type of work back in the day. But the intimidation and harassment, if you like, has evolved into something... Um, something uh, quite different. It's there. It's it's reputational mm -hmm. uh, harassment, if you like, um, uh, and deployment, cynical deployment of uh, politics and media to undermine or attack the integrity of the work that you're doing. Um, an awful lot of our work now over the last ten years involves um, challenging the state over its role in the conflict, mm -hmm. and uh, we've been involved uh, with a small number of other practitioners in in steadily undermining and, uh, and challenging settled, comfortable narratives about the, about the conflict, i.e. 50% killings were Republican, 40% Loyalist, 10% were security forces. And the litigation, whether via inquiries, inquests, civil actions, uh, or the very small number of criminal investigations, mm -hmm. has helped really undermine and turn those sort of statistics upside down. Um, and there is a real backlash against that and has been for a number of years. Yeah. In fact, it's almost a sort of a perverse backhanded compliment to the work that, that uh, practitioners are doing in this field that the government now wants to shut it all down. Mm -hmm. And the legacy bill introduced um, last year and working its way through yeah. uh, um, Parliament um, is going to be, it looks like at some stage later this year, probably May or June of this year, will become law. Now, the, the, my view, I have a very cynical view about this, uh, evolved over the, the last number of years, uh, and it's because, as I've cited, um, the courts 
have demonstrated that they're fully independent and open for business in relation to legacy conflict-related matters. Mm -hmm. And that's something that the government doesn't have any control over. And I think they just don't like that. And um, they didn't see, I just don't think they ever saw coming the sheer uh, level of and volume of cases um, brought, uh, and let's not forget, the, the basis for that has been the uh, doggedness and determination of families yeah. to want to see uh, justice for their loved ones. And there has been systemic failings on a political level over the years, going right back, Eames Bradley, Haas Sullivan, mm. we had Stormont House Agreement in 2014, um, and by and large, uh, notwithstanding some uh, logistical difficulties with, with these uh, processes, by and large there was consensus, yeah. particularly in Stormont House Agreement, and uh, yet we had that scrapped in 2020 uh, to be replaced with this current um, proposal. Um, so that political uh, backlash mm. is demonstrated uh, uh, on foot of the uh, the legacy bill, and we're at the right at the apex of that, uh, trying to deal with that. And um, the courts and the sheer number of cases working through the courts, the I think the British government has seen that that level of legal agitation as increasing over the next number of years, yeah. and they've decided enough's enough. They, they promote the legacy bill on the basis that it's to give families closure, that it's to give them uh, transparency and openness in relation to what happened to their loved ones. Mm-hmm. But it's not the case. It's not families of victims centred yeah. at all. It's, not. it's, it's centred on perpetrators. Mm-hmm. And there's another serious galling um, omission in the middle of all of this. Um, Consistently, and we've seen this over the years with the production of various reports, the police response to, for example, hard-hitting police ombudsman's findings is to try and make it uh, paramilitary-centric. And yes, of course, those were the people who planted bombs and pulled triggers. But, and it's a massive but, there are um, elements and a collusive element connected to the state Mm -hmm. behind an awful lot of atrocities, which always seems to get... uh, taken off the page when yeah. it comes to investigations. And the, and I've listened again, right up to the, this morning's uh, engagement, I've listened again to some of the political commentary about the legacy bill, and the consistent line put out is that it's to try and uh, make perpetrators accountable to the exclusion of the state. Yeah. They forget that it's, or they don't forget, they know full well, but it's a deliberate removal of the state uh, as a component in this, mm-hmm. and that's, com- that's completely abhorrent. Mm-hmm. So a lot of I mean, and that would force your hand and others to have initiated, you know, groundbreaking litigation, I suppose, going back to the the start of of your career on behalf of these families. Um, I mean, I imagine that a lot of that was quite unnerving at the time because it was um, quite novel ground and perhaps you were uncertain as to where these cases were going to go. So it was ultimately a risk in taking a lot of these challenges. But ultimately, you know, they have been groundbreaking breaking and in many cases um, you had you know really good outcomes but I'm just thinking logistically you know what were the challenges that lay ahead because we're in a very unique jurisdiction here um, and even the likes of being funded seems quite a logistical challenge perhaps given that you know the actions are against the state so how, how does it work just in a very practical sense? Um, yeah it's a good question and it's one that has always been uh, uh, at the foremost of, uh, of, of my mind and colleagues uh, over the years. I suppose the starting point for this was the uh, production or the issuing of the Operation Ballast Report by uh, Nulo Alone, the former um, director of the Ombudsman's Office, Police Ombudsman. And once that report issued, 
uh, we took a decision to take uh, legal action, civil actions against the, the state uh, over collusion, which was uh, highlighted, highlighted and cited in those reports. And um, the other case that, that started at that time was an investigation uh, into uh, uh, atrocities like uh, Lockin Island, mm. I should say investigation by ourselves. Of course, there was no state investigation. And we filed a series of, of complaints and cases like Lockin Island and many others with the Ombudsman's Office. And uh, I remember instructing a council uh, to say, look, you know, should we be looking at other ways of engaging on the current impasse on uh, uh, the, the, the conflict and how to resolve it and how to deal with it. Um, the McCurr group of cases from 2001 and 2003 were a series of European Convention applications in relation to shoot to kill and other mm -hmm. contentious killings brought before the European Court and Britain was rightly condemned in those yeah. pursuant to those series of cases as not having complied with Article 2 of the Convention, the right to life and uh, the right to uh, a proper investigation into the taking of life. And the outworkings of those cases, um, there was a considerable delay on the part of the state, but eventually you had um, undertakings, promises, etc., uh, to respond via the um, uh, installation of the Ombudsman's Office, mm -hmm. um, uh, inquests, having inquests properly uh, brought uh, to, to deal with a lot of these cases, and, um, uh, and eventually then the uh, historical inquiries team. So these processes were put in place but they, they were seen not to be moving quickly enough for mm -hmm. families. And, uh, for example, in relation to the police ombudsman's office, uh, whenever um, uh, the new ombudsman ca came in, Al Hutchinson, his office, uh, he was complaining that he didn't have the resources to deal with this. And uh, there were other resourcing issues. So things moved at snail's pace, mm -hmm. uh, at such a, such a slow pace, which was intolerable for families. Okay. So we decided that we would take a lateral approach to all of this and use the courts and put the, make it court-centric mm -hmm. and actually for f to give families a chance to take control of it uh, and have a, an input that they could handle uh, along with their solicitors and supporting NGOs. Uh, rather than be completely reactive to the other processes supposedly put in, in place by the state. And that was the origin of, I suppose, our legacy litigation, and it involved taking a raft of cases, Article 2 themed judicial reviews mm -hmm. before the High Court, um, which resulted in cases like uh, the Hooded Men, um, uh, the Bernard case in connection with the Glenan series of killings in the mid-1970s, uh, and many, many others. Uh, including as well a case of James Martin, which was a challenge to the Ombudsman over the failure to investigate the outworkings of the uh, what was called the Danny Morrison trial. And, and that eventually resulted in the appointment of uh, John Boucher in the Operation Canova investigation into the alleged agent known as Steakknife. So this was an example of court uh, legal agitation via the use of public law remedies mm -hmm. to try and achieve some form of uh, transparency and openness for families and mm -hmm. victims to engage uh, on, on historic conflict-related matters. Yeah. That plus increased use of civil actions. The civil action in some ways was almost back in the day seen as the, as the poor cousin of truth recovery legal processes. Um, and, uh, and I remember saying to colleagues back 10, 12 years ago, you know, we're going to have to litigate the conflict. I know that sounds incredibly cynical and almost crass, especially when you're dealing with uh, murders and the loss of life and, and loved ones trying to engage in a process. 
But this is a mercenary business when you're dealing with the British government yeah. and its state agencies. And it required an appropriate response. So sure. we proactively engaged and started using tort actions. I have a sort of a quiet laugh to myself when I think about it because I was one of the most useless tort students. I got barely scraped past 42%, mm-hmm. I remember <laughs> very well. And... Uh, and to find today that uh, we're involved in all sorts of complex tort cases involving, um, for example, the tort of deceit, where uh, an allegation that the government agency has held information back from families. Uh, and I mean, I mentioned Eamon McMenamin earlier. He was involved in one of the first ever collusion cases in relation to the loyalist agent, Brian Nelson, and his role, uh, along with the state, in the killing um, uh, of, of a number of people. And he, he brought legal cases. Um, and in that particular case, the case of Slain, uh, Jared Slain, um, we now find out a number of years later through the production of reports from John Stevens and so on, that information had been held back mm-hmm. from the families in the original civil settlement. And we've now issued fresh proceedings. We also have the, 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 the grounding tort of misfeasance, which is the, the tort, if you like, to cover the term collusion. Um, we have um, conspiracy to kill. You have damages issues such as aggravated and exemplary damages, concepts involved in that where you're trying to highlight um, uh, and have a punitive, if you like, component to state accountability in, in cases. The concept of secondary victims mm-hmm. uh, where someone came along and witnessed the atrocity, the killing of a loved one, and they arrive on the scene. Um, and uh, there's a raft of cases, a new case law made in connection with that. Um, and uh, extra jurisdictional issues, complex matters involving discovery, the whole notion of sensitive and non-sensitive discovery and how you process that through the courts, sensitive discovery which touches upon issues of national security, Mm -hmm. how that's all dealt with through uh, uh, closed measures proceedings under the Justice and Security Act. Um, And and, uh, so there's a vast diaspora of of civil litigation uh, uh, that, that covers the conflict. And uh, all of that is still ongoing mm-hmm. and, and continuing. But of course, uh, as I've said earlier, the government wants to, to end yeah. all of that. And just maybe two questions, Diamond, from that. Even though you've brought it into a, a court-centric approach, you still, um, from what I can see, have to largely... It's, it's, there's real interfacing with various different agencies despite that. And I wonder, um, has it been your experience, the family's experience, victim's experience, that, um, you know... the, the the whole process has been frustrated depending on who's appointed to various roles, for example, police, police ombudsman, DPP, the various um, appointments of um, you know commissioners and et cetera throughout the time that have come and gone. Um, do you find that you still largely have to deal with you know so many different agencies to, to affect the court work itself? And do you think that this could have been avoided in terms of the litigation or was it inevitable that you had to do this to resolve the issue or was there another solution in terms of government accountability? Well, the starting point to answer that, uh, Sarah, is the political process. And I've said this to so many families and address meetings on it, is that on one view, um, having to go and engage a solicitor ought not to have been on people's uh, radar Mm. at all. The fact that you have to instruct a solicitor at all Mm -hmm. um, betrays the fact that there's a real sense of failure. These were and still are serious political issues and problems that ought to have been resolved politically. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't. And as, as I've cited earlier, there was a, a series of, of, of um, attempts uh, which fizzled out. And uh, the, uh, the problem was that uh, 
with those political failings, um, we we have been left in a default position of having to uh, litigate. And uh, the second point I'd make is that the various agencies set up uh, to deal with this um, have never been properly resourced. So the inquest process has never been resourced to the way it should be. Mm. The police ombudsman's office. Um, the HET, um, the, I know there's differing views about the, uh, the, the true um, uh, worth of the HET. There were there, yes, there were justified critici- criticisms, uh, but they did produce some significant reports, uh, especially in the Glenan series of cases, which helped form the basis of the Bernard Judicial Review. Mm-hmm. So the point is, is that the various agencies and structures in place uh, post the McCurr group of cases um, uh, had to be engaged with and still have to be engaged mm-hmm. with as a supplement or, if you like, a, to complement um, the legal processes that sure. were involved in. But if those agencies and if the processes had been completely resourced and fit for purpose, the need to take separate legal agitation would have diminished. The fact that those processes were completely poorly resourced and not fit for purpose at times uh, led to an exponential increase in the need for legal agitation on behalf of families. Sure. So that was the historical inquiries team that you referred to, and I think it was it ended in 2014? 2014, yeah. Um, so how would you, going forward, and or consider now, and I know the legacy bill, the government have their own kind of ideas as to a commissioner to deal with this, but do you think there is an appropriate agency now, or how would that look to you, maybe a standalone department, you know, that would dedicate... Um, resources and time to this, what would be the way forward along with the litigation or in, in lieu of it? Well, there's a, I th- as I understand it in the Legacy Bill, there's a proposed uh, organisation called the ICRIR um, and uh, I mean, that it has been uh, put forward as the answer, but it isn't. It's not going to be independent uh, mm. and it's not going to be fit for purpose for the needs of families. Um Stormont House was an opportunity yeah. missed. Uh, Stormont House, the Historical uh, Investigations Unit, the HIU, was the proposed model. Yes, it would have had some problems in relation to sensitive material, but there was always the option, uh, and this is important in the context of what's been proposed today, uh, where the government want to shut down the courts, at least with HIU, there still was the option of judicial agitation yeah. in the event that um, information uh, was held back. As I understand it, the Secretary of State uh, in that model had a veto over access to certain information, but at least a citizen, uh, a family of a victim, uh, a victim, had the entitlement and the right of access to the court. That inalienable mm-hmm. right of access to the court was still there within the Stormont House model, the HIU model, but has, of course it has been completely removed um, mm-hmm. in the latest proposal. Um, so um, any variation on what was originally proposed would be welcome, mm-hmm. uh, but it looks like that moment has long since passed and we're now having to deal with what's on the table, which is this abhorrent legacy bill. unfortunate. Yeah, so the, the work you've built, I mean, we'd know a lot of the cases, high profile, um, you know, shown around the world and exemplary work, um, Bally Murphy, a lot of the Blundi- Bloody Sunday cases that arose. So do you think it's unique to Northern Ireland that lawyers have commenced really groundbreaking work on legacy and kind of post-conflict issues and how might this have influenced um, other jurisdictions around the world, if at all, if you're aware of it? I think in many ways practitioners here involved in legacy conflict work have actually, and I don't want to sound uh, boastful or anything, but uh, 
I think we've led the way uh, in terms of accessing the courts. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, and I've looked at uh, other jurisdictions, I'm not quite sure there has been the same level of engagement with courts, especially on civil actions, on, on tort actions uh, in other jurisdictions. And I remember looking at the, um, the Whitey Bulger case in, uh, in Boston, mm-hmm. and Whitey Bulger was uh, an agent of the FBI and, and the police in Boston, and uh, an Irish-American <coughs> high-profile figure, uh, of ill repute, and he was involved in killings and another uh, criminal terrorist activity uh, whilst he was an agent. And I remember reading that a number of families of his victims uh, filed lawsuits in Boston and uh, in America. There's a very stringent uh, statute of limitations, okay. which said that you had to take your case within one year of the incident. Within one year, and and the problem there was that the families were saying, "But look, hang on a minute. Mm. We didn't know that this guy was an agent, and we only only upon realization of his true status were we in a position to um, take these cases." But incredibly, the court struck them out as out of time. Um, to my mind, that looked like a political decision. Mm. Point being is that it, it's in marked contrast to the um, uh, the flexibility shown by the courts here on limitation. And that's absolutely vital when, when we look back at uh, the history of conflict legacy litigation in this jurisdiction is that uh, under uh, Article 50, the courts has a discretion yeah. to extend the limitation period. And, and after a series of battles, fought actually more so on in relation to the context of historical abuse cases. Okay. There's been at least three cases we were involved in, and regrettably, we lost three cases yeah. on limitation on historic abuse. Um, and it didn't set a good template going forward uh, for um, uh, conflict-related litigation. But, but thankfully, um, those cases were, were seen for what they were, which were very, very spe- fact-specific. Um, and and the, the jurisdiction has been really open for business uh, on the limitation issue on both historic abuse litigation and on conflict litigation. And uh, so to, to this point today in 2023, we're in a very, very mature position. I'm not so sure that is quite the same position in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. dealing with a post-conflict scenario. We've engaged with um, people from Argentina. I met a, an Argentinian lawyer uh, just a few weeks ago uh, who was very interested in the work that goes on here in this jurisdiction um, because they didn't have quite the same engagement in the civil courts uh, in dealing with uh, some of the uh, historic abuses perpetrated by the state in the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, There was uh, the former Yugoslavia. Uh, Again, they have had uh, war crimes tribunals uh, set up to deal with a lot of this, but the concept of civil litigation against the state doesn't seem subject to correction elsewhere, doesn't seem um, to have uh, evolved to the same extent as it has here. So in many ways, I think uh, uh, people and folk involved in in legacy issues here uh, have, have forged a new path. Fantastic. So taking a quick break here to say that I hope you're enjoying this episode of Activist Lawyer. Again, we'd be grateful if you could like, share and review the podcast. And please check out our website at www.activistlawyer.com where you will find some Activist Lawyer branded merchandise and some blog articles. Please tune in on Apple, Spotify or the platform of your choice for more great episodes coming soon. And just in terms of, um, I suppose, you've so many um, cases that you've been involved in um, over the years, but what do you feel stands out for you as a, maybe a defining moment, either personally in your career or with your team at KRW? Is there anything that you you know would look back and say, we really achieved a great outcome there and we're really proud of that piece of work? 
Well, it's, I mean, there's a series of cases. You're always mm. loath to identify just one case. Yeah, of course. Um, and there's a raft of cases. Um, I mean, they, they worked on, on, on Lock and Island uh, in, in conjunction with journalists um, uh, in the production of the film No Stone Unturned. Mm-hmm. And that's a classic example of... Uh, of journalistic and legal and NGO agitation working together um, and using both legal processes and the media in a very strong, powerful way uh, and a linked up way and sends out a powerful message. Um, we, we've had, um, a, I suppose, a, a number of cases uh, taken to extend the whole, this whole traditional notion about collusion that it was very much loyalist, state-centric, uh, mm. I think is now uh, outdated. And uh, I think collectively all of the cases taken point to consistently highlighting the role of the state right across the board. And, and uh, in fact, we're sitting here in Newry, uh, uh, which is the basis for a, a raft of cases during the conflict, which are now playing through the courts involving allegations of Republican state collusion. Um, and uh, some of the atrocities, killings perpetrated here, and other uh, terrorist um, incidents involving um, uh, one or two agents within the IRA in South Down in the 80s and 1990s uh, are now being played out through the courts. Um, we have a total of 28 cases arising out of uh, incidents that happened here in Newry and South Down from mm. the, uh, the late 80s and early 1990s all involving allegations of state penetration of the IRA here and uh, the use of an agent uh, who's well known. Uh, and uh, um, uh, In fact, he has admitted himself in his book that he, he had such status. Uh, I don't want to go into any more detail mm-hmm. because that is actually the subject of pending further litigation and judicial review. I think collectively all of those cases um, uh, which have forced the government to the point... Um, uh, through the through work of ourselves and a small number of other uh, uh, firms in, in the North dealing with this sort of work, mm. that it has brought the British government to this incredibly draconian position to say, we're shutting down yeah. the courts and we're denying access for families. I mean, the more I think about it, it's, it's depressing. I get angered about it. Um, I'm trying to look at ways to circumnavigate it. Um, and uh, and when I stand back and look at it and, and, and see that we're almost sleepwalking into this position where um, it's somehow going to happen that the courts are saying, uh, that the, the government is saying, you can't access the courts. Yeah. Now, when I, I mentioned earlier about being a student and doing mm. law uh, at Queen's, the notion back then that uh, you would, in your later career, involved in cases, have to deal with a concept whereby there's a piece of legislation that yeah. says you are not allowed to litigate these type of cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something more akin to some sort of third world um, dictatorship, yeah. uh, but yet it's happening it's here happening. In, in a modern Western democracy. And of course, their proposals impact all um, aspects of community here. It's not just one-sided approach. Everybody who has suffered will you know, continue to play a victim if, if their proposal goes ahead. And I guess on that point as well, and I know, you know you've know you received a serious amount of uh, criticism, mostly from um, publications, the, the lovely tabloids that we're all familiar with. But do you sense that they portray you as maybe a one-sided firm, you and the other practices in Belfast? And, you know, how do you, um, you know, respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty grim, but... Um, I mean, we've had to take litigation, we've had to take defamation cases successfully. Um, 
against the Mail on Sunday, against mm-hmm. the Sunday Times. Uh, we've been described as legal auxiliaries of the IRA in the mm-hmm. context of the Hooded Men. Uh, we've been described as uh, being involved in witch hunts and uh, in, in, in taking cases without merit um, by the Mail on Sunday. They apologised and paid out damages, um, and uh, uh, regrettably, and unfortunately, we, we have uh, another case pending on the 28th of February yeah. uh, this month. Um, uh, I myself present as a plaintiff in my own libel case, along with my colleagues, my partners, in an action against the Sun newspaper for an article in November 2016, uh, where they described us as being involved in a witch hunt against the uh, British Army and using uh, taxpayers' money, legal aid, to take these vexatious uh, cases that we are Republican-linked um, and that the actions that we're doing have no merit. Um, I mean, I get angry about that. And uh, in, in this business and the work that we do, solicitors generally, and particularly the type of work that we're involved in, reputation is everything. And whenever there are challenges made like this um, to your reputation, it's galling, it's depressing. Um, you, you just wonder how deep-rooted it is. You think of the people who might uh, otherwise have wanted to retain your services who may not have done so mm. because they have looked at this, uh, this type of um, uh, appalling use of offensive language. Um, but again, um, and again it's, it's a cynical view that I have. I, didn't, I don't think that uh, a journalist in the Sun newspaper woke up one morning and decided to attack uh, my firm and two other firms who are cited mm-hmm. in that article and have a go at us. Um, I think there's other deeper um, uh, engagement um, involved with the state. What it is, I don't know. Yeah. I remember being at mediation, confronting three journalists from the sun, and I put that to them, but they sat stony-faced. Um, the silence, I suppose, was tantamount to a denial that there was any kind of um, state military intelligence backdrop to the briefing to attack the firm. But, of course, what we now know is with the uh, two things. One, the attacks made by um, successive secretaries of state. Mm-hmm. Theresa Villiers used the term uh, pernicious narrative being perpetrated by uh, lawyers. And then, more latterly, Brandon Lewis, whilst not naming us, um, did describe the work of lawyers involved in this area uh, in very offensive terms to the point today that we have now issued separate defamation proceedings okay. against Brandon Lewis. Um, so the collective white working of all of this, I, I think this was all part of a, um, a choreography. Mm-hmm. I think it was setting the tone and putting in place a template for the later legacy bill is to demonise those involved uh, uh, on the front line in taking these sort of cases. And the best thing to try to undermine the integrity of you do is to is to describe you in these sort of yeah. um, derogatory terms because the perception would be that that somehow then undermines the quality of and, and integrity of the work that you're doing, the credibility of the work that you're doing. Um, and, and, and in turn, using that to feed into uh, the type of narrative that has been perpetrated with the Legacy Bill, yeah. which is that um, this is centric on challenging uh, uh, ex-members of the British Army, ex-members of the security forces for criminal prosecution. And it is a complete misnomer. It is just nonsense to suggest that um, there were going to be hundreds and hundreds of criminal cases involving ex-members of the security forces. You could count the number of cases yeah. on one hand. They're well known. Um, the likes of J.P. Cunningham case, the Joe McCann case, uh, Bloody Sunday cases. And uh, these cases uh, are, are small as a proportion of the overall number of 
criminal cases and killings. They're in incredibly small. Yet that was put forward as a prime basis as to why a legacy bill was needed. The real reasons are, uh, and I've discussed them already, yeah. and I'll emphasise them again, the real reasons for this was the role of the state right across the board, not just with loyalists, but also with, with Republicans. Sure. Um, and that, uh, I think, was reaching a critical mass in the courts. And uh, the men in dark suits who David Cameron spoke of when refusing the Finucans their inquiry, I think, have a hand to play in all of this. The extent to which they've been involved in perpetrating the immediate offensive on us, uh, I don't know. Maybe time will tell. But there's certainly the hand of the state, the, the mm. deep state, mm -hmm. is involved in this legacy bill. And I mean, I know some of the documents that I've looked at and that you've shared with me as well show, you know, a level of support internationally for lawyers, particularly from the United States who were involved in a lot of the, um, you know, the formation of the Good Friday Agreement. But I just find it interesting that um, some of it pinpoints a lot of this to 2016 um, when there was a surge in attacks. And it was taken from something that Theresa May, who was Prime Minister at the time, had said in relation to, I think, Afghanistan and Iraq. However, the tabloids took it, twisted it and applied it here verbatim, pretty much where she had mentioned about the activist left-wing human rights lawyers who were haranguing and harassing British military personnel, um, tank-chasing lawyers and everything else that you've just described, fat-cat lawyers, then witch hunts was mentioned as well. It just seems incredible that somebody in that high position, um, public position, could, you know, commence, has taken it upon themselves to really damage um, the legal process here and across, you know, the UK. It, it really is so, I don't know, it just, it doesn't, it, it beggars belief that that still continues to happen to this day. And just to put it in context, it's something interesting here is the UN basic principles and the role of lawyers, again mentioned in um, one of the articles that you sent to me, was that lawyers are able to perform all of their professional functions without intimidation, hindrance, harassment or improper inf interference um, and not be identified with their clients or their clients' causes as a re result of discharging their functions. I mean, that just seems to be blown out of the water and continues to do so to this day. So I know we'll focus on um, you know, your case coming up with this on again. And I think the level of intimidation and harassment was really deep in terms of you know, some of your partners in the firm as well. You've expressed there that you know, you're personally, it makes you extremely angry. Um, but how does it affect, I mean, the day-to-day -day work? Do you feel that people maybe are reluctant to approach your, your firm or your practice because of this kind of level of, you know, misrepresentation, um, you know, to such a high level? I suppose um, going back to the time of Pat's killing, um, I, as I've highlighted earlier, uh, the, uh, I, my working practice uh, uh, my day-to-day -day working practice, I was always very security conscious. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I knew how to check my car for... Uh, devices. Um, I changed my name. I changed my routine. Uh, I was very careful, circumspect about where I was going, and the, that that kind of imprint is still on me. Yeah. And um, you mean you could call it paranoia, but I mean I have a reason for that. Um, yeah. And uh, that paranoia still exists today. So when I see this type of attack, and you've cited there Theresa May uh, describing. Um, uh, the work of lawyers as tank chasing and so on. That that kind of um, imprint from those early 1990s days is still with me. Mm. And so I'm alive and maybe, forgive me for being oversensitive to it, but I have a reason for you that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, of course, uh, let's not forget, 10 years later after the murder of Pat, 
we had the terrible atrocity and the murder of Rosemary Nelson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember seeing Rosemary about three weeks before she was killed. I went in to her office. She was actually in touch with me about uh, how to fill in certain claim forms. <laughs> I know it sounds incredibly uh, dull and <laughs> bland, but uh, I, w- I was engaging with her on, on basic um, business issues like that. Called in to see her. And I remember, I remember at the time feeling a sense of, uh, of, of her vulnerability because I was able to walk up the stairs uh, in her office and walked into her office with piles of files behind a fog of smoke. She was a, she was a heavy smoker, Rosemary. And I said, Rosemary, look, I've come in here just, you know, willy-nilly off the street. And, you know, and she just shrugged it off. Mm-hmm. And three weeks later, she was, she wow. was blown up. And uh, so... <laughs> The, and I remember not long after Pat was killed, uh, an old sage of a client said to me, you know, Kevin, there'll never be another solicitor murdered in this jurisdiction. And I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, he's right. You know, nothing could ever like this happen again. But it did happen again. It happened with the murder of Rosemary mm-hmm. after the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, it's 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 appalling. And um, uh, two months, I think two months after Rosemary's killing, the Law Society met and had a... Uh, an extraordinary general meeting, uh, one of the first times, in fact, that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And there was a resolution passed about the need to have inquiries into, into both the killings. And that's over, um, it's only 23, 24 years ago. Yeah. But the um, the type, so I, I have an inbuilt kind of um, anxiety about what the state is capable of. Yeah. But it's because I come from that background. To many people, that might seem as just a bit you know, just a bit mad, but I, I get to say yeah, that. I mean, you'd see, you know, people saying, oh, it's uh, alarmist, but when you've witnessed that for yourself on two occasions, I'm also reminded of the likes of the MP, you know, Joe Cox as well, who was a victim of far-right extreme violence that was perpetrated by media articles as well. I mean, a lot of it is intertwined. And not only is it an attack on um, the rule of law and lawyers, but um, very importantly on, on peace here, do you think, do you think this type of, almost encouragement from the state to allow the media to have a free run at lawyers, you know, without really a second thought to their safety and, and you know, their, their families and how they feel and how the members of their firm feels as well. Does that cause, does it lead to instability on a wider um, basis, do you think, or do you think it can be contained? Well, um, it has been happening and is happening and uh, I'm dealing with it in a few weeks' time in the mm-hmm. High Court. But... Um, for example, the use of the lazy use of journalism such as Republican linked, mm. that has a horrible chime back to the appalling words of Douglas Hogg, the junior minister, three weeks before Pat was killed. That with regret, he said that some, yeah. some lawyers, regrettably, um, uh, had sympathies with the IRA. And that, if you like, is almost a modern day re, uh, reincarnation of that type of uh, syntax used in. in in, in the newspapers mm. and it's very very dangerous mm-hmm. I mean uh, we, we you know yes it's 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement there have been massive political and security advances mm. I mean it's a completely different world that we have now today than, than the world that I existed in before then practicing law but there's still a residue of of uh, the old past that's here yeah. there, 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 there are still there are still threats. There are still people in society here who are, are dangerous. Mm-hmm. And um, a, this type of commentary um, is, is dangerous. And, and, and it's, it's whether or not 
there any foresight on the consequences of it have been properly given? I don't know, yeah. but it's certainly very, very uh, um, annoying and, and, and causes us all to be extremely angry. And immediately when I read those sort of words, I'm taken right back to those dim um, and dark yeah. e times of, of practicing sure. in, the, in the 90s when you were dealing with threats of the type that I've, t I've talked about. Yeah, and it's almost, I mean, their justification is that lawyers here are attempting to rewrite, you know, history and create their own version of events. Um, you know, and exploiting a lot of the families for financial gain, which of course, as you, can, you know, with the really in-depth and heavy workload that this involves, um, runs counter to that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we could go on and on about the threats and it, they still seem to continue. We did have, I know you'd probably be aware, Colin Harvey, who's an yes. academic, Professor Colin Harvey in Queen's University, has been very outspoken recently and as an academic who is involved in discussing, you know, Ireland's future and constitutional issues here, you know, is subject to a barrage of abuse daily, it seems, online. So that the abuse, people are more accessible um, in terms of getting at, at somebody. Um, and I mean, I'm sure, you know, I don't know whether, I'm guessing you'd receive comments or emails from individuals, not alone just the media, you know, maybe encouraged um, disgustingly by the state. You know, I mean, can it come to an end? Hopefully your case, you know, coming up in February will draw some sort of... Yeah, we, we, we regularly get uh, all sorts of interesting um, social media commentary on the back of, of a court case. Um, uh, I keep all the um, interesting negative social media. In fact, I've printed off some of them and uh, we're in the process of getting them framed and displaying in our office. So we kind of wear them as a sort of a badge and say, listen, you know, throw it at us. Yeah. It, it, we actually turn it into uh, a negative comment is turned into a positive and it just... That type of um, commentary, social media or otherwise, and it's all pervasive now, it's the world that we live in, mm -hmm. um, uh, you use that um, uh, uh, to inspire rather than to make you run away from it, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, it is what it is and we, we, we don't give it any credence whatsoever. Um, and uh, But the um, you're quite right, Colin Harvey, um, who's a client of the practice, um, uh, has been subject mm -hmm. to some horrendous uh, online abuse. Um, and all of us involved in this sort of work in human rights work, of course, would say that everyone has an opinion. Everyone is entitled to have their opinion uh, and to, do, to display it, but not to the point where our lines are crossed yeah. and, and, it creates an, and it creates a threatening environment. That's just inexcusable. Mm -hmm. And those people perpetrating that type of uh, um, uh, commentary uh, ought to know better. Yeah, well, I suppose it's one of the reasons we had looked at setting up this podcast of the last couple of years, seeing the barrage of online abuse. But it, you always see that it's encouraged by um, high-ranking members of um, the government, which is uh, very worrying and continues to do so for this day, to this day. But just leaving that aside for a moment and going back a little bit in time, just to you opening your own practice. Um, I mean, what encouraged you or inspired you to do that at that time, and uh, how did it work in a uh, logic? logistically and you know with your your staff etc yeah well i think we're now two th i think we're 21 years in existence and uh, we started off primarily as a as a criminal law practice mm -hmm. like about 60 70 percent of the work would have been crime and uh, a and that at that time 2001 uh, there was still a lot of uh, heavy heavy criminal work involved in the courts um t some two or three years after the, the good friday agreement and i know we had the various ceasefires and so on but there was still the outworkings of the political process, 
uh, uh, still lent itself to a lot of of heavy criminal work, um, and uh, we were involved in some some significant cases. The, the Northern Bank robbery, for example, and the, the Robert McCartney murder case, the Oma bomb trial, both criminal and civil, um, and uh, all of these cases uh, were were. Uh, taking place in the 2000s, but I suppose one of the first cases uh, um, that I was involved in after the formation of the office was the um, the Stormont Gate affair, if you like, where uh, Stormont was collapsed on the back of an allegation of uh, an IRS spy ring um, and the recovery of documents. Mm-hmm. But what we now know, of course, is that uh, uh, this was a contrived prosecution um, uh, undertaken for wider complex political and security force agendas at play and involving um, a certain dysfunctionality within policing, etc. Um, and uh, that was played out via this court case and it led to the unmasking of, a, of, of an agent, Dennis Donaldson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose just touching on that um, and the work that I was doing in the 1990s in criminal cases, uh, political trials, etc., um, a we, we now know that uh, at times in, in some of these cases, um, and it's not just in relation to civil actions, but also in criminal cases mm-hmm. too, where uh, there would have been um, a separate, uh, almost like a parallel world uh, existing where you'd have intelligence matters, satellite files, etc., handed into the court, mm-hmm. which uh, the defence would not have been party to. And um, the the Stormont case, it was, I suppose, at the apex of that type of case because the the disco- disclosure process in the criminal trial flushed out the existence of uh, an agent mm-hmm. who was one of the people appearing in the dock. Um, uh, and I have no doubt, that going back to the 90s and the repeat applications for what were called public interest immunity applications, public interest immunity certificates, um, uh, which were made in many, many cases, uh, all uh, pointed to the existence of an intelligence agenda underpinning certain a certain number of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of that has seen the light of day. Um, more latterly, a lot of the trials we were involved in in the 2000s uh, did in fact touch upon that and did uh, expose, such as the Stormont case, the existence of agents and informants uh, in different in, in different cases. So that 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 was the world that we inhabited yeah. for the first number of years, and then that evolved and morphed into all sorts of other work, um, largely human rights based. Uh, human rights yeah. based, yes. Mm-hmm. And so to the point today that. Uh, uh, a significant portfolio of our work is stretches straddles all sorts of different strata. Mm-hmm. So if you like that criminal, um, the the, the criminal the work and experience in in criminal litigation, uh, compounded by civil litigation and human rights agitation, has evolved and morphed into our getting instruction from all sorts of other areas that we hitherto would never have. Yeah. Seen. So the skills and I suppose the expertise that you develop there can, you know, translate or completely, transfer, I guess, over to transferable into yeah. other areas. And f- so, for example, we're involved in in cases. Uh, I suppose the, the cases that other people don't want to do at times, <laughs> and we've seen that especially in the Republic of Ireland. I mean, we're involved. I mean, if you'd said to me ten years ago, uh, we'd be involved in taking on one of Ireland's, if not the biggest, stock-listed company, CRH Roadstone, on a €150 million Euro commercial action for alleged uh, cartel fixing, price fixing in the concrete industry, I would have said, no, 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 that's not for us. That's for one of the big commercial law yeah, firms, yeah. not a human rights criminal law firm. So the skill sets, the template, the mantra, if you like, mm. the uh, in-house 
house uh, that we have in those other those traditional areas are equally transferable mm-hmm. uh, to all sorts of other um, illegal arenas that that we we we, we 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 would never have usually been involved in. Yeah, brilliant. And do you think your initial kind of interest in financial the financial world? Um, you know, enables you to, I suppose, manage the business side of things too, because obviously not only are you uh, responsible for this, you know, intense and heavy caseload and attracting new areas of work, etc. But it, it is a business essentially that needs to be managed and run efficiently. And you do have quite a significant number of staff, 44, 45? Yeah, we're 45. At yeah. one point we went over 50 with three different offices and then we, we rationalised it into one office based mm-hmm. in Belfast. And uh, I suppose the modern world you live in now, you know, you don't need to have a physical presence yeah. in location A, B and C mm-hmm. um, uh, you know instructions can be taken anywhere throughout the world and indeed we have uh, taken instructions from outside the jurisdiction in, in, in many ways but on, the, on a business front dealing with this sort of work, dealing with legal aid human rights, traditionally that is seen as the kind of almost like the poor man's sort of uh, law firm but uh, and, I, and I rail against that mm. um, to do human rights work to do this sort of work properly uh, there has to obviously be um, a business base to it, and uh, um, a, if, if you don't have that, then, then nothing nothing gets done. Uh, and I mean, I know it might sound incredibly dull, bland, and boring to many, but it's about it's about valuing your time and valuing your work. So if you're working on a case, it's it's to put a value in that, and uh, it, it has it has to it has to be accounted for, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Thankfully, we have a very fit-for-purpose legal services agency um, who have been very supportive throughout the years. And I have to say, I take this opportunity to commend them for the, the assistance they gave during the COVID uh, era mm-hmm. uh, to, to our type of work. And, and Legal Aid uh, really stepped up to the plate and, and helped practices uh, navigate their way through that difficult time. But it extends further back from that and going forward. Uh, I've found the LSA has been very flexible and receptive to the type of work that we're doing. Um, yes, um, you have to make your case. It's like anything. It's the strength of your case and how you articulate it and advocate it. You have to do that. So um, the team are uh, on on message about what's needed to be done in, in relation to progressing a case and, and taking an action. Um, and we have sophisticated um, uh, business uh, processes in place. We're Lexel compliant. We've just come through mm. a Lexel um, inspection the other day and uh, it can be a tough uh, a tough journey into that uh, where the office is on a kind of a, a war mode alert yeah. to get the to get everything, get files in place and people have to be interviewed. It's a tough, tough gig, mm-hmm. but you know what? It's worth it and I would mm-hmm. thoroughly recommend it to any other practices involved with this sort of work you step up to the plate and it makes you think about what you're doing what are you doing in your business and how are you doing it as i understand it we're one of 13 practices that are lexile compliant in this jurisdiction and uh, um i can't commend it enough uh, to do it and uh, to put the sweat in Mm. so um a yes um the nuts and bolts the basics of it are are billing and understanding and how to um record your time how to process that how to stand over it if you're in front of a taxi mm-hmm. master mm-hmm. is how do you you know you have to be able to say i did this work for the following reason i know it sounds incredibly yeah. uh, basic but it is if you get that if you get the basics yeah. right like that um mm-hmm. then um you, you're on a right footing yeah and sometimes i find young people coming through uh, law school coming in from university and they have fantastic aspirations to do the work of lawyers and are, are greatly driven to be lawyers 
but it's it, it, it's important at all times to recognise you need to be tax savvy. You need to understand VAT. You need mm-hmm. to understand uh, accounts. You need to understand the business of how law runs, and. If you do that, I think you're a better lawyer. I think you're a better yeah. human rights lawyer. I think you're a better activist lawyer. Mm-hmm. The more that you're able to do that, and just on the approach to your work, you've touched on it that you know you don't see it as a job. It's it's a vocation, um, and that's very very clear. But how do you separate, or do you separate, you know, your day to day life, you know, your family from that work? Is there an off switch ever, or is it always just there in the background? Um, you know, what do you do to switch off if you do? I don't switch off. <laughs> I'm always on message. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely love what I do. Um, um, as I've outlined, uh, I like to think I'm driven for certain deeply personal reasons. Sure. Um, and uh, I know, I know, I know, I'm going to bore you now by saying that an awful lot of it does come back to your, your, your childhood and family yeah. background. I mean, my mother and father uh, put me onto a building site when I was age 10. So every summer from age 10, I worked in a building site, getting up at 5.30 in the morning, God. making my packed lunch. I still get up at that time, and I still make my packed lunch, and off I go. And uh, if I'm in after 7, I feel the days run away from me. Yeah. And um, But I find myself running into the office at times. I can't wait to get in, yeah. to get started. I have as much enthusiasm now for the work that I do as I did when I started. Uh, I don't see that evaporating or lessening any any anytime soon I feel that there's so much to be done I get frustrated at not having enough hours in the day um, yes I do have family yes I do have a social life yes I have played sport and so on and that's important as well it's an important sure. compliment I do all the, the basic stuff that other people do but I like to um, maximise my day um, there's no time spent dawdling yeah. about reading newspapers and long lunches uh-huh. it's, it's full on because Quite simply, I enjoy the work. I enjoy the challenges. And yes, every single day there are massive uh, hassles and difficulties and trials and tribulations. Disgruntled clients, disgruntled colleagues, uh, disgruntled others. Um, You're fighting with people. You're on a war front. um, uh, You're agitating on all sorts of issues. Mm -hmm. There's not a single day goes by that runs smoothly. But, as I said in the... uh, Godfather film, uh, Michael, it's the business we chose to be in mm-hmm. and it's the business that I chose to be in and I'm still in it. And with that business that you chose to be in, what advice would you have for anybody who would like to get into that area of work, even practically speaking? I think it's empathy. I think, I know it's so, it sounds uh, so basic, but if you've empathy for people mm. and listening to their their problems um, I always say if you look after the small cases the big ones will come so if you have a client who comes in and I keep saying this and I try to rail against it I keep saying this to to staff and colleagues um, no case is too big or too small um, and no case is so small that you just turn it away to that person that small case that you might take it to be it's their life you know so for example we would regularly have clients who have maybe had their shoes or their jeans taken off them during a police search, mm-hmm. and they want those pair of jeans, and they want that computer returned, mm-hmm. and they want they want their trousers returned because it might be the only pair of trousers that they have. Yeah. And to the outside eye, that might seem like a really nothing matter, but to that person, it's so important. So if you manage to recover those items of property for that person, you have a very very loyal client mm-hmm. who may have some other instruction of of great significance. Um, so um, if, you ha- if you're if you interested in competing 
and have empathy for that person and their issue um, as, as, and has the enthusiasm to see it through. Mm-hmm. Th- I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I think if you just look at it as just uh, as something, as a nuisance, or that you know, as a box tick you have to get out of the yeah. road for the day, it's not going to work for you. Mm-hmm. And you, may, you may go and do something that's else. Nice. I think you have to embrace the client's concerns and worries and anxieties, subsume them, and try to offer um, a chart through, a way through. If you're interested in resolution of difficulties and problems, no matter what they are, if you're interested in the fight, you have to be competitive. It is yeah. a competitive world, competitive on all sorts of fronts, three-dimensional front, competitive and in in, in, in difficult and complex of, of the type that I've talked about. But if I think if you're hot-wired that way to compete um, and you have that empathy and that passion, um, this has all been said before by others more mm-hmm. eminent than me, but I think it's that, that's very important. Yeah, yeah. Um, excellent advice. And, and just finally, I guess, uh, the question that we ask everybody is, uh, how do you view the role of um, the law um, and activism, and can activism and the law together make change in society that we need? Once? Yes, I think uh, activism and law, uh, engaging with other parties and being alive to the, uh, the, po- the endless possibilities of the work that you're doing, uh, it's n- has never been more important today. You know, uh, we've come out of a conflict society, and we're still dealing post-conflict. But there's still so many challenges mm-hmm. there, and of course, human rights work straddles all sorts of different terrain. It's not just uh, sometimes people look at human rights, and and the, there's this lazy view that it's to do with prisoners or people charged with criminal offences, and that's somehow human rights. Of course, we know it, it isn't. It's in in, in equality mm-hmm. issues, sexuality issues, uh, education, health. Um, uh, and, all, and discriminatory issues, you know, it, it extends so so far and wide. Mm-hmm. And I think um, a good grounding for someone wanting to be activist in this area is to have an understanding of the Human Rights Act and its its clout, its reach, mm-hmm. and it straddles so many areas of life. I mean, one of the big things at the minute that our firm is dealing with is um, uh, healthcare deficiencies, mental health deficiencies. We have a judicial review pending in the High Court at the minute for the um, the key issue of um, the lack of uh, oversight um, uh, for complaints in relation to the provision of mental health care. There is none in this jurisdiction, unlike England and Wales. And uh, uh, and that, that's a massive gap that, that exists here. Um, human rights legislation, uh, human rights issues uh, permeate so many different mm-hmm. strata. Um, uh, and I think having an awareness of that and having, uh, I think it's important as well uh, not to hide your light under a bushel. I think um, you, you, it is important to engage with media and forum like this, the podcast, is very, very important. Um, it's not just to do the case, but to make sure that the impact of that case has been made known to the wider world. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally in the past, law cases, results, judgments, etc., were the preserve of the lawyers. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we live in a completely different world now where people have access to uh, outcomes within seconds. Um, you don't have to go and buy a newspaper. Those eras are long since yeah. gone. And getting your message out, getting the result, can create impact, and, and, and it's part of the activist process, in my mm-hmm. view. Okay, well, Kevin Winters, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise.
This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.